Glad to be with you tonight. I'm glad you're here. See many visitors in our midst tonight from congregations in the area. We appreciate very, very much you being here tonight. Appreciate you supporting this meeting. Appreciate your friendship through the years. I appreciate the elders inviting me to come. I know a little bit about the history of past uh, speakers in gospel meetings. I know you've had some excellent men that have been here in the past, and I appreciate the invitation to be here with you. There is implied and implicit in an invitation to preach a confidence. Whether that invitation is to work with a congregation, as Brother Tony has here for 29 years, or whether it's to preach in a meeting like we're doing this week, or even one night in a lectureship or VBS or whatever it is, there is an implicit confidence that is being expressed on the part of the elders to the man that they asked to come because he's going to be standing in that pulpit and preaching to their brethren, those over whom they have the oversight as shepherds. And they don't want a wolf to come in, and so they are trusting the man that they invite to preach the gospel. And I take that very seriously. As I know Tony does every week. We all do. And so I appreciate that confidence and I intend to try to live up to it. And uh, this week, as we've done this morning, we'll do tonight and every night, the Lord willing. And I hope that something that we say will be helpful to you to reassure and strengthen your faith, maybe to bring you closer to Christ, or if you're not a faithful child of God, to motivate you to become one. Now, if with your Bible open in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to be thinking about some lessons that the rich young ruler learned when he came and asked Jesus what to do to have eternal life. You will also find this recorded in the 10th chapter of the book of Mark and the 18th chapter of the book of Luke. But we're going to primarily be thinking about these verses as they're found in Matthew, though we'll reference those others just uh, periodically as we go through. But there are a number of commendable things that you could say about this man. We know the end of the story. He went away sorrowful. But there are some commendable things that you can say about him. Mark says that he came running and he kneeled. And so there was a sense of urgency and there was uh, a high level of interest on his part to come to Jesus running. And then he showed a measure of reverence for him as he knelt before him to ask him this question. He asked him a question concerning the most important thing in our lives, eternal life. What is a man profited if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? He was concerned about his soul's well-being. He wanted to know about eternal life. How many people do you encounter from day to day? And how many of them ask you about eternal life? He was interested in that. He was ready and willing to have his life examined by Jesus. He said, what good thing can I do to have eternal life? When Jesus told him to keep the commandments, he said, all of these have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? He was willing to have his life examined by Jesus to tell him where in he might be deficient. Now, he did not respond in the appropriate way for his soul's salvation. But nonetheless, he came and asked all of these things. What did he learn from Jesus? Number one, he learned that there is a relationship between grace 
and works of faith. There has been an ongoing debate and discussion in religious circles for many, many, many years concerning the idea of grace and works. Some will say we are saved by grace alone, period. You cannot add or do anything to affect your soul salvation. It's all a matter of grace. But then there are those who contend for works. Now we can go to the other extreme and contend for a system of meritorious works whereby we can be saved. And though people do not come right out and say it that way, sometimes that's reflected in how they describe themselves. They may say, for example, well, I'm just trying to be a good person. And if I be a good person, I believe I'll go to heaven. What they're telling you is that they envision salvation like a set of scales. And as long as they have more on the good side than they have on the bad side, the scales will tip in their favor and they'll get to go to heaven. Now, folks, if that's not trying to work your way to heaven, I don't know what it is. And you can't do that, you see. Because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And there's no way that we could ever do enough good. If we could live to be old enough to call Methuselah a boy, we couldn't do enough good. If we never sinned another day in our lives, all of those years, we could not do enough good to offset a single solitary sin because it's not a system of merit. God never intended it to be that way. It never has been from the time of Adam all the way down to this night tonight. So if I've got the idea that as I live my life, I've got to make sure I do more bad than I do good, I've got to make sure I do more good than I leave good undone, and the scales will tip in my favor, I've got an erroneous concept of works. But Jesus showed that there is a happy harmony between the grace of God and what God requires of us in order to be saved. It's interesting to me that when Jesus, when this man came and asked Jesus the question, Jesus didn't say, do, do? you can't do anything. Neither did he say as he did on another occasion, though he was not asked the question. In John 8, he told those Jews there on that occasion, except you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. But he didn't tell that man this, did he? No, he said, keep the commandments. And so there is a happy harmony between the grace of God whereby we receive what we do not deserve, favor, unmerited favor, and what God requires of us in order to demonstrate and express our faith in him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul said it this way, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now what kind of works is he talking about there in Ephesians 2, 9? It's obviously works of merit. Works of which one could boast. But take any of the commands that God places upon us, and in keeping those commands, we have no occasion for boasting. We don't have anything to boast about. 
We didn't do anything of our own volition and merit. Rather, we simply by faith kept the commands of God. And so this man asked, what good thing can I do? And he learned that there is a happy harmony between the grace of God and what God requires of us to be saved. It's not all of grace. It's not all of works. In the Old Testament, when God gave the law of Moses through Moses to the Jewish nation, that was not, as I've heard a few people say, a system of merit or a system of works. It was a system of faith. The problem that developed was the Jewish nation perverted that into a system of merit. So you have the statement of Paul in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Verse 4. You see, they divorced faith in Christ from the keeping of the law. So that they thought that because they were a descendant of Abraham, the blood of Abraham flowing through their veins, they could go up to the temple and they could find the genealogy of their family and they could trace it all the way back to Abraham. And the fact that they had the law of Moses and claimed to keep it, though they didn't do a very good job of that, did they read Romans 2? They thought their ticket was punched. And so when Jesus came, preaching salvation, they didn't think they needed a Savior from sin. They wanted a Savior from the oppression of the Roman government. They wanted a Messiah who was going to establish Israel with the glory it had in the days of David and Solomon, but not a Messiah that was going to deliver them from sin because their ticket was punched. And what this man needed to learn is the same thing that you and I need to learn. It is by grace, but it is through faith. And it is through a faith that takes the commands that God imposes upon us and honors those by obeying them. It's always been that way, folks. What God requires of us as a demonstration of our faith is not the same thing that He required of those under the law of Moses. Not the same thing that He required of those during the patriarchal period. But it has always been by grace through a faith that obeys God. And that's why when you read the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, he starts with Abel. Comes all the way down through those Old Testament heroes. By faith. By faith. By faith. There is a happy harmony between God giving us what we do not deserve. And our accepting that by complying with the conditions he places upon us. That's an important thing to learn, don't you think? 
It is a part of the ongoing debate and dissension that exists in the religious world. Not only did he learn that, he learned that every command of God is important. Every command of God is important. He came to Jesus and he said, What good thing can I do to have eternal life? Notice the singularity. What good thing can I do to inherit or to have eternal life? Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, which? He sounds like people today who will say, just tell me what I have to do. He sounds like someone who had the concept that we can boil Christianity down to just a few essentials, and as long as we comply with that, everything else can be ignored. But it can't be. Every command of God is important. It is essential for one to be baptized. But that's not the be-all and the end-all of Christianity. That's not even the be-all and the end-all of becoming a Christian. Yes, it is important for people to be baptized. And I sometimes hear loved ones say about their family member, Oh, I, I wish they would get baptized. And we all do. But only if that baptism is predicated on faith, repentance, and a confession of that faith. All of those are essential and of equal importance. A man is not saved by believing in Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, repenting of the life he has thus far lived, and then confessing that faith and not going down into the baptistry and being baptized. He falls and stops short of doing what God says do. But neither is one saved if he is baptized but does not repent. I'm going to keep living the way I'm living, preacher. I want to be baptized, and once I'm baptized, never darken the door of the services again. Did he repent? Now, there's no way you and I can know, perhaps at the very moment that the person's not repenting, but God knows. God knows whether we are obeying from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto us. And a person may come believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, stand up before an audience like this and make that good confession, go down into that watery grave and be immersed, but come up having never repented of the life they've been living, and they are just as lost when they leave that baptistry as they were when they went into it. Because repentance is just as essential as being baptized. It's not the be-all and the end-all. Every one of those conditions that God gives is of equal and vital importance. And remove any one of them out of it, and you have perverted the plan of salvation so that it's not a plan of salvation at all. That's important. But that's not all there is to Christianity, is there? There are those who want to sort of boil it down to a matter of just giving. If I come on Sunday morning, take the Lord's Supper and put some money in that contribution plate, I have met my duty. Years and years ago, 
in another state where I was preaching. In the summertime, there was a deacon of that congregation who loved, and I suppose still does, love the Atlanta Braves. Now, some of you are right there with him, I know. And that's okay, to a point. There were occasions when I would be at the building early on Sunday morning, refreshing my mind with the lesson that I had prepared for that day. And he and his wife come to the building, go in, partake of the emblems in the Lord's Supper, put their check in the contribution plate, leave and drive to Atlanta to see the Braves play. That man doesn't know what Christianity is about. He hadn't worshipped God. He's worshipping the Braves. Is it important to partake of the Lord's Supper? Is it important to make a contribution financially to the extent that I've been prospered? Yes. But is that the only thing about what we're doing in an assembly on Sunday is about? Romans 12.1, we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto God. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 5, Paul said of those Macedonians, they did not as we had hoped, but they first gave of themselves to the Lord. When he says that they did not as he had hoped, he didn't mean that he didn't want them to give themselves to the Lord, but they were making a contribution where Paul never had expected them to do that because of their poverty and the circumstances under which they were living in their Christian lives. And yet, because of their love and their joy and their devotion to God, and because they had given themselves wholly, completely to the Lord, they begged Paul, let us help. And they did. Folks, Christianity is not something that you can just sort of boil down to one or two little things that as long as you punch that button, as long as you check that box, you got it made. Christianity is a way of life. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Twice it says of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22 and Genesis chapter 7 and verse 5 in regard to Noah's building of the ark, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 16 it says concerning Moses, the building of the tabernacle and the anointing of the priesthood. Thus did Moses according to all that God commanded him. There is not a commandment of God that I have or you have in our Bibles in the New Testament today under which we live that we are at liberty to simply lay aside and say that doesn't matter. Every commandment of God is important. It is not to be done in in a way of merit, but as a demonstration of our faith. But every command of God is important. Some of them may be harder than others, and to be sure they are. 
There are some things that I find extremely challenging and at times difficult to do that God tells me and you to do. You may never have any trouble with this. I find it hard sometimes to worship. It's hard to worship. Go into the assembly as some of you have done and maybe are doing tonight. A mother or a daddy laying on their deathbed. Sick. Suffering. A child facing an extremely difficult trial about which you have prayed, it's hard to leave that outside and come in and just lay that out of your mind and focus on what we're doing. Worship is a challenge. If you and I worship God acceptably, it will be one of the hardest things we try to do because it involves the intent to worship God It involves the purposeful praising of God in song, petitioning God in prayer, listening to God as He talks to us through His Word, all the while with things going on around us, things out in the world that are threatening our minds. That's hard to do. It's challenging. For years I've heard it said that the hardest command in the Bible is to repent. I realize that can be hard. I'm not sure, I don't know whether it's the hardest or not when I think about how hard it is to worship. But there are some commands, what I'm saying to you tonight here, there are some commands that are harder than others. And they may be harder at some times than they are at others. But I am not at liberty simply because I'm finding it hard to lay that aside and say, oh well, it doesn't matter. Every command of God is important. Why do we have so much religious division in the world today? There perhaps are many factors. But isn't this part of it? We have actually had people come to us at Rome, worship with us a little while, and then leave and say, we don't want to have to be at every service. We're going somewhere where we don't have to be. You don't have anybody like that in Warren County, I know. And so they will find a congregation where the elders of that congregation will never ask them, Hey, we missed you Sunday night. Where were you? Why weren't you there? Why? Because they're looking to lay aside some of the commandments. There are congregations where the truth is preached, but not all of the truth is preached. Some of those delicate subjects are passed over, like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Some moral issues, social drinking, immodest apparel. And so those things are never touched. 
guess what kind of membership they have. That's where the social drinkers will go. That's where they'll have members dressing immodestly, even in the services, in the assemblies. That's where folks will go who are in illegitimate marriages because those things are not dealt with. Folks, we're not at liberty to lay that aside and be the Lord's church. Every command of God is important. And sometimes it's harder to keep those commands than it is at others. Sometimes it's hard to preach about those things. But we're not at liberty to lay any of, the, of them aside. A book was written several years ago entitled The Forgotten Commandment. It was about discipline, church discipline. We're not at liberty to lay that aside. We won't be the Lord's church anymore if we do not observe that command than we would be if we left the Lord's Supper out of our sin. Though it's hard, you know you're dealing with people's lives, you know there are families that are involved. The Lord says, do it. This man learned that every command that God has imposed upon us is important. He wasn't at liberty just to pick one or two, but all of them were important. Jesus said, if thou wilt be perfect. Not sinlessly perfect, without that kind of flaw, but perfect in the sense of being mature or complete. Is that my desire tonight? To be perfect. He learned that. Not only that, he learned that real fulfillment is found in giving. Jesus recognized, no doubt, the very heart of this man's problem was his attitude toward material things. That seems to be evident, doesn't it? After Jesus had said, if you will be perfect, go and sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come and follow me. Matthew says, when he heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Luke says he was very rich. I like the way Mark puts what Jesus, how Jesus responded to him in Mark 10 when he says, Jesus beholding him loved him. He told him what he needed to hear because he loved him. I don't help people. And you don't help people when they need to hear the truth and we tell them something else because that's easier. And so Jesus told him what he needed to hear. You want to be perfect? You need to learn that real fulfillment isn't found in things. In Luke 12, he said, Take heed and beware of covetousness. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. As my children were getting older, becoming teenagers, and making their choices about what they would do with their life and their professions, 
I encourage my boys to preach. It has its hardships, but I think it's a great life. Brethren have, by and large, been extremely good to me, better than I deserve to be sure. But I also told them, I want you to do what you want to do. And as long as it is honorable work, I don't care what you do. I don't care how much money you make. But I want you to be a faithful child of God. Our daughter is a teacher at Wilson Central High School, and she's been teaching there now for six years. And this year she won Teacher of the Year for her school. And I attended the banquet where they awarded the teacher for Wilson County. But I let her know, as pleased as I was, that she got that award. It means more to me that she be a faithful child of God and a godly mother than that she ever be Teacher of the Year. Again, that means more to me. Real fulfillment, folks, is not found in the accumulation of possessions, in the achieving and the receiving of awards. Real fulfillment is found in a relationship where we give of ourselves. That's true when it comes to a marriage, isn't it? Men and women that enter into a marriage, you have a man and a woman that come together and when they give of themselves to each other, they're the happiest. The husband who's always worried about what his wife isn't doing for him is miserable and he always will be. If he gets rid of her and gets another one, he'll be just as miserable. Real fulfillment is found when a man and a woman come together, live to please God, and in that relationship endeavor to try to outgive, as it were, one another for the benefit of the other. It thrills my heart to see a husband whose wife may, through no fault of her own, experience failing health, and he takes care of her. It thrills my soul to see a man who may through no fault of his own have failing health and his wife stands by him and assists him without complaining, without bitterness. Why? Because they're giving themselves. It's not all about me. It's about that one I love. That's true when it comes to our religion and our spiritual lives. Man or woman that is constantly coming to the assemblies expecting to get something and goes home disappointed most of the time because they didn't get what they came after has missed the point. The people that will go out of this assembly tonight who will have the fullest hearts and strengthened souls will be the men and women, boys and girls that came into this assembly to go to the throne of God and draw near to Him, as Hebrews 10.22 says, and give Him our praise and our adoration. And when we give that to Him, our hearts will automatically fill up and we'll go home and pillow our heads tonight, having been blessed beyond measure. 
Not because we went to get something, but because we went to give God what He deserves, even though we fall short of what He really deserves. And it blesses us. And I believe that's the reason God had commanded us to worship Him. We're not giving Him something He needs. Paul said to those on Mars Hill in Athens, He's not worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything. The reason God commands you and me to worship Him is because He knows it's good for us to do that. When it comes to the Christian life, become a giver. Didn't Paul say that Jesus said, Acts 20 and verse 35, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Did Jesus come into this world to give or to get? He came to give, didn't he? He came to live his life to give glory and honor to God. He came into this world to give his life a ransom for my soul and yours. And in so doing, he humbled himself, divested himself of that divine glory he had with the Father. He said before the beginning or in the beginning, John 17, what God do for him? God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name, Philippians chapter 2 says. He didn't come to get that. He came to give. And that's the secret to religion. It is a relationship that we enter into with God wherein we are striving to give him Glory and honor in everything that we do. So that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Work, recreation, worship, service, do it to give glory and honor to God. Resent invitations to meetings. Resent requests and appeals of the church for workers. Not those who are looking to give. To give of themselves. To be like those Macedonians who first gave themselves to the Lord. No wonder they wanted to make a financial contribution. In the midst of poverty and suffering. Because that's where real fulfillment and joy is found. It's not in getting. And our world has missed that. And a few of our brethren. But thanks be to God. For faithful children of God. Who can be counted on. Why? Because they give. If you could talk to that rich young man that went away sorrowful, if you could talk to him tonight, what do you think he'd tell you? You think he'd tell you that those great possessions were worth it? Or do you think he'd tell you what's a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What would you have done if you had been asked to say a few words at the funeral of the rich man, Luke 16, 19 to 31? 
What do you suppose might have been said at his funeral had he died in our day and time? Man, he could stretch a dollar. He was a shrewd investor. He worked so hard. Now you're going to talk about his soul. What are you going to say? What can you say? What if you spoke at the funeral of Lazarus, a beggar, full of sores? You might not even want to get close to the casket and look at his body. What would you say about him? Couldn't talk about his work. Couldn't talk about his possessions. You might talk about a man who seemed to have a lot of hard luck. But now talk about his soul. And what are you going to say? Makes a lot of difference, doesn't it? Let's learn these lessons. There's a happy harmony between grace and the obedience of faith. God wants to save us. And if he saves us, it'll be a gift. Romans 6.23 But God attaches some conditions to the reception of that grace. Believing in Christ, John 8.24 Letting that faith lead us then to turn away from a life of sin and rebellion against God to a life of compliance and submission. Loving obedience. That's called repentance. Acts 17.30 Commanded of all men everywhere. That we confess with our mouth what we believe in our heart. You don't have to make a long speech. There's no formula of words that must be cited precisely. A simple expression of your faith is sufficient. And be baptized for the remission of your sins. Have you done that tonight? If you haven't, won't you? If you're a child of God, It's obvious tonight that you're interested in spiritual things. Still, you're here. I hope that you're not only here because you're expected to be, but because you wanted to give God praise and adoration tonight, to express your love and appreciation to Him in this worship, these acts of worship, for all that He's done and will yet do for us. And that's why you're here, because you wanted to give. And I trust that being true, you'll go home full. But if you're trying to boil Christianity down to just a few random acts of obedience, you're going to miss the secret and you're going to miss heaven. can't be done. You need to repent of withholding yourself from God. And He promises to forgive, to forgive us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, First John 1, 9. We hope that you'll do that. As together we stand and as we sing.